This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Kingdom Story Company's I Still Believe. Based on the real-life true story of chart-topping singer Jeremy Camp, I Still Believe, rated PG, parental guidance suggested, in theaters March 13th. More information is available at istillbelievemovie.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Welcome and thank you so much for joining us again. USA Today recently reported on the latest results of an international exam given to teenagers, which ranked the USA ninth in reading and 31st in math literacy out of 79 countries and economies. And the newspaper concluded that the best way for American schools to improve math education is to teach it differently and more creatively. But there are, of course, many more problems with America's public schools than just test scores. Whatever happened, for instance, to teaching students to respect our nation's history or to possess good moral character. Well, these are just some of the important ingredients for creating a good American education. And we're going to talk about it more now with education expert Michael Petrilli, who is president of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, research fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution, and co-editor of the book we'll be discussing. It's called How to Educate an American, the Conservative Vision for Tomorrow's Schools. And it's great to have you with us, Michael. How are you? I'm well. Thanks so much for having me on, Janet. Well, thank you for being here. We do hear a lot, don't we, about test scores and performance. We don't hear so much, I would say in the media at least, about what makes for a good American education. How would you respond to that overall view of what it really takes to educate an American? No, I I think that's right, Janet. You know, really the driver for this book was the sense that education reform, which many of us have been working on for, for decades now, feels stuck. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, we see that the test scores that you referenced are, are not moving in the direction we'd like them to be moving in. And a lot of the bipartisan efforts that have happened uh, over the years have been breaking down. That's some bad news. Now, we thought, though, this does provide an opportunity to step back and ask some super smart people. In this case, we asked about 20 leading conservative writers and intellectuals, policymakers, to give us their thoughts on where should education reform go next. And what was interesting was that uh, almost all of them agreed that we had been ignoring some things uh, in this education reform movement that matter a lot, like teaching American history and doing that the right way, like teaching character, like sending the message to kids that uh, there are strong ways to enter the middle class that do not involve going to a four-year college, lots of other ideas in this book. And it's time for us as conservatives to re-engage with these ideas. Oh, I agree completely. I'm wondering how you would characterize the guiding philosophy, as it were, of American education right now, if there actually is one, and and maybe also discuss a little bit about how that has veered off course from what has been the conservative vision for the schools. Yeah, you know, I would say that the big focus for the last decade or two has been on this notion of, of readiness for college and career. And I think we'd all agree that those things are important. Uh, we know that most young people today are going to need some kind of post-secondary education in order to get a decent paying job. doesn't have to be for your college, uh, but, you know, people do get paid better if they've got those credentials. Uh, and, of course, that we want to make sure that uh, better education system is producing students who can go out and get a job and pay their bills and support a family. Uh, but uh, what that leaves out is the focus on citizenship 
And it's that focus on citizenship that really was the driver from the very beginning for having a system of schools in America. Uh, I think all of us would agree it's hugely important. When when we look at what's happening in our country today with, with all of the polarization and just the inability for us to even talk to each other and work together, uh, I think there's a sense that there's a breakdown. And when you dig into how uh, we are teaching young people today about civics or about history, it's very disturbing. Yes. You, know, you, you either look at elementary schools where outside of, uh, you know, say, core knowledge schools, you see very little teaching of history going on. Or as the kids get older, if it is being taught in many places, it's being taught very much from a, a left-wing perspective, very anti-American. You know, instead of a warts and all approach, it's only the warts. Uh, and, and teaching kids, uh, you know, America, rather than being this, this country with these amazing ideals that we have sometimes struggled to live up to, it's, it, the message is that America is nothing but a racist, imperialist, oppressive country, right. a very cynical view about our history. And, and that may explain some of what's going on these days. Well, I agree completely with you. And do you think that in and of itself is reflective of the failure in many regards of the American public schools? Because those people who are putting that out there now to the new generation of students themselves were educated in that way. I would say many of them, at least with that leftist viewpoint that says America is terrible and America needs to be worked and reworked and has to be different than it's been in the past. I mean, it kind of trickles down, doesn't it, from generation to generation, if that's what you're hearing in school. Well, right. And it's certainly probably what many of our teachers heard when they went to colleges and universities. I think there's a lesson for us uh, as conservatives. You know, I think you could certainly argue that over the last uh, generation, we on the right have basically ceded the universities to the left. Yes. You know, make sure that those universities uh, continue to uphold the principles of this country. Well, now we're doing the same thing when it comes to the public schools in too many cases, you know, not engaging on these big debates about how history is taught. Now, the good news is that these decisions in our system are still made locally. uh, And so concerned citizens can show up at school board meetings, even run for the school board, ask questions. How are we teaching history here in our community? Are we doing it in a way uh, that hears perspectives from all sides that looks at the, the positives and the negatives? Or is it all negative? And, uh, you know, I, I'm optimistic that if conservatives step up and, and let their voices be heard, uh, we won't have the same situation that we have today where, again, some, some of this uh, nonsense is happening in our own backyard. Well, you're right. I think that the involvement of the local parents is very, very critical to making sure that the schools are doing their job. One of the things I want to ask you, though, when we're talking about the need for students to understand American history and to understand citizenship and civics, what all do you believe that ought to entail in the curricula? For example, when you're talking about elementary, it's going to be different than maybe in middle school or high school. But what sorts of things ought to be taught in the classroom K through 12? Yeah. So first of all, we have got to get back to the point where our elementary schools really are teaching history and science and geography. And boy, if if you're saying, well, what what are they teaching instead? In in a lot of places, we spend a huge amount of time in elementary school teaching, quote, English language arts. Uh, And when you dig in, what that looks like is kids doing these endless drills around reading comprehension, you know, which is reading a passage and trying to find the main idea. And you know, it's as boring and ineffective as it sounds. <laughs> you know, the way that we actually are going to both teach kids how to read and teach them all this other important material is to teach stuff, is to teach history and science and geography so that 
when they get to a passage and they read something about you know Abraham Lincoln, uh, they know a lot about Abraham Lincoln. They does not just that they can sound out his name, uh, but that they actually have been taught about what he did in his uh, in his career and what he stood for and how he saved the, the, the nation and on and on and on. So that's the first place it starts, is to bring back history into our elementary schools, where a lot of place, times it's been pushed out. And then as kids get older, I think it is appropriate to present different perspectives. You know, it, if, uh, if schools want to use some of the more controversial materials where they are presenting, you know, a real sort of downside of American history, they sure as heck better not do that alone. They need to make sure that there's another side presented as well, that the more patriotic, positive vision as well, and then let kids wrestle uh, with the different interpretations. Right now, though, what we see in a lot of schools is awfully close to indoctrination instead. Michael, what would you say is the current state in the public schools of actually having kids read some of the most important founding documents? I'm thinking about the U.S. Constitution and the Bill of Rights, the Declaration of Independence, maybe the Federalist Papers, some of these very, very vital documents that have told the story of the history and the republic that we live in today. What is the status that you know of regarding how much students are getting as far as knowledge and direct knowledge of these documents? by reading them in school? Yeah, it's good. It's a good question. It's hard to know for sure. The good news is these are included in many state standards, the expectation that students will read these documents. And when you look at classes like the advanced placement history classes, you see a lot of use of these kinds of primary documents there as well. Now, the question is, though, what kind of interpretation are the educators using when they're presenting them to students? I'm sure we could do better on that. Well, I'm sure. Hang on just one moment. We're going to go to a break. We'll be back with Michael Petrilli, his book, How to Educate an American. You're listening to Janet Meffer today. The healthcare open enrollment period has ended. Did you miss it? Don't go a whole year without having a healthcare program. Sign up with Liberty HealthShare. As a Christian healthcare sharing ministry, Liberty HealthShare is not insurance, so you can still sign up. In fact, you can sign up any time of year, and there are no contracts. Starting as low as $199 a month, Liberty HealthShare has memberships for singles, couples, and families, so you can choose the ideal program for your situation. Plus, Liberty HealthShare has no network, so you're free to pick your own doctors, hospitals, and providers. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, so your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you, too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Go to libertyhealthshare.org JMT for more information. libertyhealthshare.org JMT. Hi, this is Janet Mefford, and we're partnering with the Ministry of Preborn to save babies' lives through ultrasound. Here's how a nurse describes the power of an ultrasound. Just one example of a mom who came in was very abortion-minded, and when she saw the picture of her baby on ultrasound and saw that beating heart, it was a defining moment that just broke her and She said, I just can't allow this baby to be killed for her own words. By letting a mother hear her baby's heartbeat and see her baby in her womb, she will choose life 80% of the time. I 
cannot tell you how many times a baby's life is saved through ultrasound. It's just an incredible tool. Will you help save babies' lives? For $140, you can sponsor free ultrasounds for five young women. All gifts are tax deductible. To donate, call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-BABY. 855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. It's great to have you with us and great to be talking with education expert Michael Petrilli, president of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute and research fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution. He is co-editor of the new book, How to Educate an American, the Conservative Vision for Tomorrow's Schools. And Michael, before we went to the break, we were talking a little bit about some of the standards that do require kids to read things like the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence and so forth. But is that making a difference when you're talking about a conservative vision for education Mm-hmm. You know, there's so much indoctrination from the left on America's failures and the Howard Zinn view of history that's inculcated in so many kids' brains. How how do you see that balance of even if you require them to read it, if you have a teacher who may be undermining it in the classroom, what do we do about that? Right. No, that, that is a huge challenge. And it's hard to know for sure how these things are being presented in America's schools, though you certainly now hear from college professors, uh, you know, including, say, Robbie George, who is in us esteemed professor at Princeton who wrote a chapter for our book, A Rare Conservative on a College Campus. Now, you know, Princeton is by no means representative, but he will say that when when he teaches freshman students there, they have already been indoctrinated. They they understand, you know, what they're supposed to say and they're supposed to take the left review. So, you know, we have this idea that there's indoctrination going on on campuses, but it is happening before they even get there. And I think that's something that we really do need to, to be concerned about. Absolutely. Now, something else that you had mentioned, and your writers, uh, such good essays in this book on the conservative vision for tomorrow's schools. But Pete Weiner, for example, looks at the issue of the decline of character education. And I'm wondering what you think would be some ways to address that important issue in a better way in the schools today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, he, he wrote a great essay on that. And look, you know, many of us on the right have said that one of the best ways we can address that is by having school choice, you know, yes. by allowing parents to choose schools that meet, uh, that fit with their own values, including religious schools. And, uh, you know, it's, it's hard to teach the character piece without uh, paying attention to religion. So that's certainly important. But we don't want to give up on the traditional public schools at the same time. They have they certainly have most of the kids. Uh, and there is a lot that they can do. And it, it comes to the old adage about how young kids, they are watching not what we say, but what we do. Right. You know, we need to practice what we preach. We need to, instead of just teaching them about character, we need to show them good character. That, of course, means that the adults in the school, the teachers and administrators themselves showing good character. It also means how do the adults in the school respond when kids invariably misbehave? There's this crazy notion going around the schools today uh, that somehow discipline, uh, we, we shouldn't discipline kids. Uh, we shouldn't suspend them. Uh, you know, to do so is, is racist. Uh, it's unfair, especially for kids that are coming from the challenges of poverty that, uh, you know, that they sort of almost to say that they can't help it. It's this, it's this soft bigotry of low expectations right. when it comes to student behavior. Instead, what they need to see is that the adults in the school are serious about learning. They're going to make sure that the environment is safe and and orderly, uh, and that kids that that break the rules and that are not able to behave, that there are consequences. And then that those students are helped to learn how to behave better 
because in the real world, there are going to be serious consequences uh, if, if you can't do so. So those are some of the things that we, that we need to do. You know, there are other ways to make sure kids are reading great books of, of literature, going back to the ancients and the Western canon, being able to, you know, talk about the, the virtues and, and character traits that we can learn from, uh, you know, different characters in history or literature. And that's all important. But I, I really think it's a lot about the climate and the culture of the schools. What happens day to day? And do the schools live up to the, uh, the values that they espouse? Well, that's right. It, it, when you were saying that, it was reminding me of a friend who I have who has been a teacher for many, many years and finally threw in the towel and took a d- different job in the school district. And the reason that she did that is she said, I couldn't discipline the kids. I wasn't allowed mm-hmm. to by the administration. You know, things that we all would have been sent to the principal for when we were kids in a heartbeat. And so we didn't dare do it. Nowadays, kids get away with everything. And she said it was yep. so frustrating because my principal would not back me up. I, I would have some kid who was out of control and the principal would say, just deal with it. And then the parent would come in and yell at me because I was being unfair mm-hmm. to her kid. You know, this is a big yeah. frustration, I think, for a lot of teachers who say, I would do that, Michael, if I could, but they're not letting me do mm-hmm. that in this school. What do we do about that problem? No, it's a huge frustration. We, we did a survey a year ago at the Thomas B. Fordham Institute uh, of Teachers asking them about these issues. And, and they are just you know, they're scared. They're, a lot of them, especially in, in tough schools, feel like they are at risk of being hurt themselves. Right. Uh, and it just kills them that their classrooms are out of order and they are not getting support from administrators when they try to do something about it. Uh, you know, so what do we do? Look, we've got to get back to some common sense. Uh, you know, we've got to back up teachers. We've got to hold kids accountable for good behavior. You know, look, people are saying, well, we don't want to kick kids out of school when they need to be in school learning. So, uh, and, you know, if you're poor and you're uh, suspended and you've got no safe place to be, you know, that that's a, a legitimate concern. So then you go to some kind of in-school suspension. You go to some kind of special schools for kids that have behavioral problems. You know, you, you tackle the problem head on, but you don't say, well, we're just going to have to accept that our classrooms are going to be disorderly and that kids and teachers are going to feel unsafe. You know, that is not okay. Yeah, and and another issue that comes up in your book is the importance of giving students a focus on their purpose. And I think that's really important to give a kid a long-term view of life. Like, you're not just stuck here today being bored by what the teacher's talking about in front of your class. You're going somewhere. If you will invest in your own education, that will better your life over the long haul. How do you do that in the classroom in an effective way, would you say? Yeah, no, it's so important. Uh, you know, one, one thing is to acknowledge that uh, where our schools do this well, it's often after school. It's after uh, outside the classroom. It's in athletics. You know, it's in the music programs and the extra other extracurriculars uh, where the American education system is probably at its, at its strongest because, again, we, in, in those places, we are all about excellence. We are about real teamwork. Uh, we're about, you know, kids uh, feeling a sense of pride in what they accomplish. And, and that's a great way for young people to start to develop those kinds of skills and to start getting to understand their own strengths and weaknesses and, and where they want to go with their lives. Another thing is to make sure that when we are, especially in high school, preparing students for what comes next, we are not so narrowly focused just on college, especially four-year colleges. You know, but that we send a message to young people that it is certainly okay, even great, if they want to go into a trade, if they want to learn a technical skill, and make those pathways open to them starting in high school, that they can find great purpose 
by having pride in their work and those skills. It doesn't have to be just uh, everything about going to take, uh, you know, four more years of courses uh, in, a, in a college campus. Yes. Now, here's a question. When you mentioned the problems in the colleges and universities as far as leftist indoctrination, and then those are feeder schools into our public schools with teachers, administrators, etc. Mm-hmm. Is there an effective way that that can be addressed? I mean, when you're talking to these bright minds that you've included mm-hmm. in your book, certainly some of the best out there, I mean, certainly that's on everybody's mind. How how do we stop the flow of leftist indoctrination into the public schools without addressing the problem of higher education and the leftist thought that goes on there? Now, look, I I don't know how to fix the higher ed piece, but I I will say that there are some tools that we have in in K-12 to make sure that kids are learning uh, something that presents all sides, you know, that we've, we've got standards uh, which spell out what kids are supposed to know and be able to do. We've got textbook selection uh, committees at the state and local levels that can help. You know, and when conservatives let their voices be heard, they can have an impact. Yes. You know, a couple of years ago, the, the folks that run the advanced placement program came out with a, a new history course. And a lot of conservatives were worried that it leaned way too far to the left. Uh, it got into some of that indoctrination. They made a fuss about it. And lo and behold, the, the folks in charge changed it. Uh, and now it's much more balanced than it used to be. Uh, we need to engage in those same debates at the local level as well. Well, that's important. And that touches on something that's so vital, and that is parental involvement. I, I, I don't think we can overstate that, really, because theoretically, isn't it the case that public schools are supposed to be locally focused? And, and way back when, the federal government was not nearly as involved in everything as it is today. How can you encourage parents to, to really be about the business of staying on top of what's going on in the public schools and being willing to run for the school board or to be involved in a yeah. textbook committee? Yeah, no, absolutely. Look, I think the first step is just to, to kind of pay attention, to ask questions, to, uh, you know, and if something looks wrong to you, if, if something, you, know, you get that feeling in your gut that that's something that doesn't seem right, you know, follow that voice, find out more, you know, dig in. Uh, and by the way, it's not just parents. I mean, even people who maybe whose kids are already through the school system, you know, all citizens should be paying attention. This, yes. this key question, how, how is history? How is character? How is that being taught? in our schools uh, and and stepping up and asking those questions. Well, that's really smart, right, because there are retirees who maybe could be involved and have more time than the mom across the street who already has Mm -hmm. lots of things going on. What would you say your vision is really, Michael, when it comes down to it for a revitalized education agenda that really implements a conservative vision of education? You know, I think we have to make sure that we have a broader vision of what education is about. You know, it's got to go beyond test scores. And as conservatives, it's got to go beyond school choice, you know, and and that means making sure that we are paying attention to how we're preparing young people for citizenship, how we're preparing them to be good people in our society, good character and beyond. And, you know, look, I I think that there can be a lot of agreement with folks on the left over these things, you know, that I I think at the broad level, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we all want uh, a strong democracy. We all want, uh, you know, good people and and uh, and folks who can go and get good jobs. But uh, but if we don't speak up, then the way it often comes out is, is very slanted. And so this is a time for conservatives to reengage. 
Well, I agree because there are an awful lot of conservative families who have kids in the public schools, even though they might say, I want school choice, but you're right. I mean, the public schools educate so many millions of kids in this country, and we can't just completely give them over and say, forget it. I'm going to take my kids out with it. It doesn't do away with the total problem because we're still faced with all the millions of kids who do go through the system. And I think this is really, really good as a vision for tomorrow's schools, a conservative vision. The name of the book is How to Educate an American Co-Editor. Michael Petrilli, who's been joining us. And just a delight to have you, Michael. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me on, Janet. Thank you. God bless you. And we'll be back on Janet Meffer today. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Kingdom Story Company's I Still Believe. Based on the real-life true story of chart-topping singer Jeremy Camp, I Still Believe, rated PG, parental guidance suggested, in theaters March 13th. More information is available at IStillBelieveMovie.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford Today, and now, here's Janet. Welcome back. Here's some news from the Southern Baptist Convention. The International Mission Board and the North American Mission Board have announced Dr. Bryant Wright will be the new president of Send Relief. This is about national and international compassion ministry. And, of course, Bryant Wright is the former president of the Southern Baptist Convention and also a signatory on the Evangelical Immigration Table principles. And you know them, the Evangelical Immigration Table, one of the heads of which is Russell Moore. And they're the ones who are always putting out out, outrage letters about Trump and whatever Trump is doing because the, the whole thing goes back to the fact that you have Soros funding, for example, putting their radio ads on Christian radio. So we've covered this territory quite a bit, but I I thought it would be very interesting and enlightening, in fact, for you to hear a little bit more about Dr. Bryant Wright. There are some people who are going around talking about how he is, you know, liberal or he's a never-Trumper and he didn't vote for Trump. And to what extent is he really on board with the refugee resettlement racket and world relief, which, as we know, Russell Moore has pushed quite a bit. And I I always thought that was a bit sleazy because that's a federal government contractor. It's not a ministry that even is allowed to proselytize. And yet you have all these evangelical leaders. Oh, world relief. Aren't they great? Aren't they great? It's like you're pushing a government contractor. I mean, isn't that just a little bit creepy? You got a contractor that makes money off bringing refugees in per head and they've lost a lot of money under Trump. And so it just looks like you're kind of shilling for a government contractor. It's just, it's so off-putting and I think unethical, but that's another subject. So I dug this out. This is Bryant Wright speaking at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in October of 2016. That's at least when it was posted online. And he did a little talk called Refugees and Immigrants. Now, Send Relief is involved with refugees. Send Relief is also involved, according to their website, with people struggling with opioid addiction and sex trafficking victims. So all of these things are good. You want to do some ministry and outreach to people who need help. But in particular, I wanted to find out what his views were on the whole issue of refugees and if he, in fact, is one of the same sorts of thinkers who misquote scripture and take scripture out of context to try to guilt evangelicals into getting onto the refugee resettlement racket train. And, well, you can listen for yourself. Listen to cut one. The flock that is entrusted to us is desperately hungry to hear what the Word of God says on 
a hot topic of the day. And so today we're going to do that in looking at the topic of refugees and immigrants and recognizing the tremendous fear that so many people are dealing with in our congregations related to Islamic terrorism, related to the unsettled nature of contemporary culture with illegal immigration, with refugees coming from Syria and Iraq and wondering about the motivation of all that with the the demagoguery of the Republican candidate for president and speaking about banning Muslims and sending immigrants who are here illegally back home. We hear all of this jargon on the news and on talk radio. And sadly, so many in our congregation spend a whole lot more time listening to talk radio or their favorite news outlet than looking to see what the Bible, the Word of God says about how we're to respond to very important issues of our day. Okay, I don't know what it is with these SBC elites. They just hate talk radio. I mean, it was just a few days ago I was playing that old clip of Russell Moore talking about how if all he knew of Christianity was what he heard on Christian talk radio, he'd hate Christianity too. And that was kind of what put my red flags up right away about Russell Moore. These guys really don't like the radio, which is all the more reason in my mind to listen to talk radio, especially Christian talk radio. So I commend you. Did you also catch the part where he was talking about the demagoguery of Donald Trump for one to shore up national security. Okay, this just kind of gives you a bird's eye view of the way that he apparently thinks about these things. Then Bryant Wright talks about what the church he pastored, which is Johnson Ferry Baptist Church, does with refugees. And note who the church called for help, by the way. Cut to. At Johnson Ferry, we are presently ministering to 10 Syrian refugee families. One of them is Christian, nine of them are Muslim. We have been ministering to refugees in an area of North Atlanta called Clarkston, where the federal government has kind of assigned that setting where refugees from all over the world come. And because we have been involved in ministry there to refugees, because we've been involved in trips with our short-term mission trips out of our global ministries area, going to the border of Syria, going to Lebanon, going to Jordan to seek to minister to Syrian refugees, When we heard that President Obama was going to allow 10,000 Syrian refugees or from Iraq to come into the United States, we called World Relief and said we would like to help. We would like to be there to minister to those families to help them to get resettled. Okay, again, you have a direct connection there with World Relief, which is a federal government contractor. And you might say that's fine because they're the ones resettling refugees. But again, we've got a really cozy relationship there between this federal government contractor that has a vested financial interest in leveraging evangelicals' views of refugee resettlement, partnering with the Southern Baptist Convention. I think it's too close for comfort. Now, let's listen in to more of what Bryant Wright had to say. This is cut three. But it is also interesting all the strong feelings about this. Because when our first refugee family came to Atlanta in December of 2015, it was right around the time of San Bernardino and right around the time of the Paris attacks from the hands of Islamic terrorists. And the governor of our state had called for a shutdown of not allowing any Syrian Muslim refugees into the state of Georgia. And here was Johnson Ferry beginning to minister to one of the first families that arrived there. You can imagine how the press got a hold of that and wanted to know how in this overwhelmingly Republican area of North Atlanta, why this church was seeking to reach out and do something contrary to what the governor was calling for. And it raises a question for all of us. Was he doing right in protecting the citizens? Were we doing wrong and reaching out 
in doing something that was contrary to the wishes of the government of our state? What are we called to do? Well, it's a good question. I don't think there's any question whatsoever that the church is to reach out and to be kind and compassionate to people who are in need. That's the Good Samaritan. Yes, that's what we should do as believers in Jesus Christ. We should help people in need. But there are all sorts of assumptions that are being packed into that statement, which he gets into a little bit more in depth later on. I'm going to get to that. Let's listen to one more cut, though. Uh, This is interesting. Cut four. And what are you called to do? And what is the church called to do? Well, as we deal with those questions, we go all the way back to Matthew chapter 2 to look at the most famous refugee in all of history. His name is Jesus. Okay, here we go again. Jesus was not a refugee. How many times do we have to say this? At least not the kind of refugee, if you want to couch it a little bit, that they're talking about in the modern sense of the term when we're discussing what happened under Obama with ISIS and the Middle East crisis and the Syrian civil war. And and might I say, just as an aside, you know how much I believe in the ministry, for example, of Heart for Lebanon, with whom we've partnered for several years now. We love what they're doing because you do have a crisis where you have a lot of these Muslim refugees who are flooding into Lebanon and living in these terrible tent settlements. But many of them don't want to go to the United States. They want to go home. And so they're there and and we, you know, through this wonderful ministry can reach out to these families and share the love of Jesus and educate their children and give them practical help and share the gospel. And that's all good stuff. But the assumption is that if we're not on board with bringing over tons and tons and tons of refugees to live in the United States forever, then we're not doing the will of God. And I utterly reject that because you have to go back to the text of scripture and actually twist it in order to try to make this argument that Jesus, Mary, and Joseph were akin to Muslim refugees coming into this country. And I'm not trying to be mean to anybody, but we're talking about a policy issue. It's one thing if you have people who are just in your backyard and you're trying to take care of them. It's another thing for you to be partnering with organizations like World Relief to actually advocate for more refugees, especially Especially when World Relief was one of the VOLAGs who was involved in opposing legislation several years back that would have prioritized Christian refugees coming into the United States at a time when ISIS was saying we will embed ourselves within the Muslim refugee population so we can get into the United States and wreak havoc. That was a major concern, and that was not wrong for Christians to be concerned about that. Not at all. And it was never a Muslim ban that was instituted by President Trump. He was trying to protect the United States from some of the world's most dangerous countries and foreclose this idea that ISIS could get terrorists into the United States who could kill people. We're going to come back. There's a lot more to come on Janet Meffer today. Christians losing their businesses for not making wedding cakes for homosexuals. Parents losing custody for not affirming their child's gender identity. Big tech censoring Christian books, videos, and social media posts. This isn't a dystopian nightmare. It's America in 2020. But what will God's people do to respond to the sexual radicals whose rising social and political power is threatening our religious freedom and our free speech? It's time for Christians to get informed about the looming threats that we're facing and learn how to respond as both salt and light. 
light. That's why I'd like to personally invite you to join me at our second annual God's Voice Conference, a biblical response to LGBTQ plus tyranny coming to Oklahoma City on April 17th and 18th. You'll hear from an unprecedented lineup of some of the leading Christian thinkers, pastors, pro-family activists, and medical and therapeutic experts who are fighting on the front lines of this battle and standing firmly on God's word in the face of growing LGBTQ plus opposition to Christianity. Let me tell you, there's nothing else like God's Voice Conference to get Christians ready to stand in this evil day. So I hope to see you at the God's Voice Conference and outreach of First Stone Ministries, April 17th and 18th in Oklahoma City. And take advantage of our early bird discount registration, only $85 through March 16th. So don't delay. Go to godsvoice.us. That's godsvoice.us and register for a conference unlike any other. Go to godsvoice.us and register now. What the church needs now is God's voice. From Kingdom Story Company comes I Still Believe. Based on the real-life true story of chart-topping singer Jeremy Camp, I Still Believe reminds us that amidst life storms, true hope can be found in Christ. He chose to walk into the fire with her. That's what love is. If one person's life is changed by what I go through, it will all be worth it. I Still Believe. Starring KJ Apple, Britt Robertson, Shania Twain, and Gary Sinise. Rated PG. Parental guide suggested. In theaters March 13th. More information is at istillbelievemovie.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Well, we are talking about Dr. Bryant Wright, former pastor in Marietta, Georgia, and former SBC president who is now going to be heading up the Compassion Ministry of the Southern Baptist Convention called Send Relief. A lot of this has to do with refugees. And Clarkston, by the way, is really a hotbed of settlement for refugees. Might I also add that the Southern Baptist Convention's North American Mission Board recently won a lawsuit against the city of Clarkston, Georgia, which is, like I said, it's just they've got tons of refugees there in Clarkston because they want to knock down two historic homes in order to build a $10 million ministry center. That's what they're setting up for this thing. And they said, well, you formed a moratorium on on this situation of tearing down historic homes, but it came after we had already received approval to build our $10 million ministry center. So they won the lawsuit. They're going to be knocking down the historic homes. So nothing like coming into the town with goodwill going on and costing the city something $50,000 or something like that, according to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. So keep that in your back pocket. But Bryant Wright is interesting, a signatory to the Evangelical Immigration Table, which is received through other channels, uh, radio funding via Soros money. It's just a fact. Back in October of 2016, he also spoke at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary on the topic of refugees and immigrants. And of course, he claims that Jesus was the ultimate refugee. I'm going to refute that in a minute. But he read from Matthew 2, 13. Now, when they had departed, meaning the family of Jesus, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. This is what Bryant Wright said about this passage. Cut five. Now, it's very interesting all through history, even to this day in very highly restricted Muslim regimes, God appears through dreams. He speaks through dreams, even to this day. And as you look at the story of Joseph, as you look at the Christmas story, you see that angels, especially angels in dreams, are a way that God is serving as communication to Joseph. They are messengers of God. And Joseph, understanding that this is truly the Word of God, has been given instruction to go and take the child. Now, it's not his child, but to take the child and the child's mother, Mary, 
and they are to flee in the middle of the night. Why? Because Herod was interested in destroying all the children of Bethlehem. Why? Because when the wise men showed up in his palace and were inquiring about the birth of the king of the Jews that they saw as perhaps being the Messiah, Herod called for his big daddy theologians and Bible scholars to come and tell him where the Messiah was to be born. They said, well, Bethlehem, it's obvious there in Micah 5 too. And Herod began to plot and to scheme how he might destroy that child because this super paranoid ruler wanted no threat to his power. Now, could there be a more uncanny parallel to what is happening in Syria today with an incredibly cruel leader and dictator that is seeking to destroy any threat to his power? A very similar scenario. What? I, I, what? So Herod wanting to kill Jesus and the fact that the angel appeared in a dream that somehow is connected to the Syrian civil war. What? <laughs> what is that? I don't see Herod uh, and uh, Bashar Assad being exact duplicates of one another. It's just, I don't know, it's just a little out there to make that comparison. Then, this is quite interesting, he references the New York Times writer Nicholas Kristof, of all people, to try to guilt Christians into supporting the refugee resettlement racket. Listen to this, cut six. And then in Matthew chapter 25, if you'll turn there in that great chapter on three great parables that are preparation for the second coming of Jesus Christ. And in the parable on the judgment, the separation of the sheep and goats, in the middle of that parable in Matthew 25, 35, Jesus says, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. Nicholas Kristof, who is a very liberal writer for the New York Times, but writes some very challenging editorials. He wrote an editorial a while back about the death of their family dog, and the title of his editorial was this, Do You Love More Your Dog Than a Refugee? Okay, why, why do you have to cite Nicholas Kristof? Basically to guilt Christians. You probably love your dog more than you love refugees, Christians. Shame on you. Matthew 25 talks all about the fact that you shouldn't love your dog more than you. No, it doesn't. Man, how many times do I have to refute the terrible interpretation of Matthew 25 that progressives are continually putting out there? And, and granted, he's, he is referencing verses within Matthew 25 about the sheep and the goats. And it is important for Christians to do acts of service and compassion and ministry. I'm not disputing that. But that is refugee resettlement is not the point of the passage of Matthew 25. All it is is showing that those who will inherit the kingdom of God will do good works because they belong to Jesus Christ. It's confirming their salvation. It's confirming their redemption. It's not a do this and you will live sort of scenario. If you don't visit enough people in prison, you'll go to hell. We all know that that's not what the Bible teaches. So just to throw that in there. And by the way, on the issue of Jesus being a refugee, let's just hit a few of these highlights. Bill Muhlenberg wrote about this. Consider the U.N. Refugee Convention from 1951. They say that the term refugee applies to any person who owning to well-founded fear of being persecuted for reasons of race, religion, nationality, membership of a particular social group or political opinion is outside the country of his nationality and is unwilling to avail himself of the protection of that country, uh, blah, 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 blah. A major part of this definition, he says, is the idea that the refugee is unable or unwilling to return to the country of origin. And one simply has to read the rest of Matthew 2 to see that Jesus did not qualify as a refugee. 
Archie since he voluntarily returned to Nazareth. As it says in Matthew 2, he goes on to say that the text does not make Jesus a refugee either, seeking asylum. And he and his family certainly were not illegal immigrants, but modern debates about such matters are just that. They're modern debates and we're unwise and unbiblical to seek to drag the birth and infancy narratives of Jesus into this contemporary debate. Well, what does he say about Hebrews 13? Let's listen to cut seven. You see, when we care for refugees, we're showing our love for Jesus. We're showing how we treat Jesus. But then there's another very interesting text in Hebrews chapter 13. Look at chapter 13 of Hebrews verse 1. Let love of the brethren continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. That's refugees and immigrants. For by this, some of us have entertained angels without knowing it. That's a very sobering verse. Angels are messengers of God that God uses when there is no access to the written word of God. And here it tells us, look, sometimes you're going to think it's a refugee or an immigrant, and it's really an angel that God has sent to see what you think of Jesus. Yeah, he said that. He said that. So basically... Muslim refugees who are brought in here by World Relief and then handed off to send relief of the Southern Baptist Convention, you better get on board with this whole thing because they could be angels. The Muslim refugees are angels. Really? Because I looked up some of these commentaries on Hebrews 13, verse 2, saying, do not neglect to hold hospi- show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. There are actually several commentators who make the case that the reference to the strangers refers to fellow Christians. Now, that's not the interpretation of every major, major commentator, but it certainly is there. Matthew Poole, for example, and... <laughs> Okay, we are we are supposed to welcome the stranger, but that does not allow us to make the leap into saying we better do everything World Relief wants. What is that all about? I'm not really sure. Then he talks about the role of the government and the role of the church. This is cut eight. You look at Romans 13, it's very clear that the, the government has a responsibility for the common good and welfare of the citizen. The government has the responsibility to protect the citizens from within and without. The government has the responsibility to administer justice and to punish evil. That is the government's role. But the role of the church is a different role. The role of the church is simply to love our neighbor. Well, there's more to the role of the church than loving our neighbor. That's ridiculously simplistic. The role of the church is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And that certainly is true. It's to worship God. It's to fellowship with one another in koinonia. It's to pray. It is to gather together in the assembly of believers. It's to use the gifts God has given to us to build up the body of Christ and to worship and praise our great God through Jesus Christ and to exercise our gifts. I mean, there are all sorts of things that the church is called to do, but to reduce it to love your neighbor, that, that, that's what the church is called to do. This sounds an awful lot like the main line to me. If you, if you isolate that as one line, as just part of what he had to say in a greater context, admittedly, but it, you know, it doesn't come down to good works, guys. It doesn't come down to good works. We exercise our faith through our good works. It shows in our works, but it is not part and parcel of all of Christianity that you have to be involved in refugee resettlement. So this is this whole thing is something to keep an eye on. I really think so, especially given his ties to the evangelical immigration table. A bit concerning, 10 million bucks. That's a lot of money for a ministry center. I wonder how many missionaries you could send overseas for that. That's another show. 
Hey, everybody. Thanks so much for being here. We got to go. But we'll see you next time here on Janet Mefford Today. This hour of Janet Mefford Today was brought to you by Kingdom Story Company's I Still Believe. Based on the real-life true story of chart-topping singer Jeremy Camp, I Still Believe, rated PG, parental guidance suggested, in theaters March 13th. More information is available at IStillBelieveMovie.com. 